and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editors Brenda Sandberg and Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is August 11th, 2023. We hope you're all enjoying the last few weeks of summer, and we appreciate you joining us, whether it is sitting in the office or laying on the beach. Things may be slower going now, but we still had several interesting FDA-related stories break this week. First is a new study showing that the weight loss drug Wagovi may have cardiovascular benefits. Kathy, this drug is already in shortage because it is in such demand. Could this data increase its use and, by extension, payer interest? Yes, I think it could. Although I, I think that payers are going to be very focused on managing the cost of the drug um, and uh, they would do that by managing access. There is a lot of concern about the demand and and how payers are going to manage it. So, you know, I think in, for commercial payers uh, in particular, they're going to be looking for cost effectiveness data showing that, you know, the cost of the drug can, you know, off, be offset by a reduction in medical expenses, um, you know, resulting from, say, lower cardiac events or that sort of thing. I think it will be important to show data on adherence because, you know, these drugs have to be taken continuously to uh, preserve weight loss. And it sounds like, um, you know, weight gain can happen when they're discontinued. So what does that mean? You know, does that mean that the cardioprotective effects will wear off and and the ex expense of covering them, you know, will essentially have been wasted <laughs> for payers? As far as Medicare goes, there is a statutory um, uh, prohibition on the coverage of drugs for obesity. It's possible for Part D plans to cover it as a supplemental benefit, but but very few very few plans do. And um, the uh, there is legislation pending that would allow plans to cover obesity drugs. Um, it's been out there for several years and hasn't gained a lot of traction, but you know, with this with data like this, it could gain more momentum. You know, I think the the legislation could provide more clarity on coverage, but um, it does uh, currently, as currently written, it would allow plans to cover, but not require them to cover obesity drugs. You know, right now that prohibition, I think, provides plans with some cover for not, you know, for not reimbursing for these drugs. The a CBO score will be important too, as far as that legislation goes. And there have been some estimates, recent estimates, that it could it could cost Medicare as much as a hundred billion dollars um, over ten years. So. That could scare <laughs> that could scare legislators away. You know, just I think in general, this um, if you look at these obesity drugs coming along, I'm especially thinking about Medicare and the Alzheimer's drugs. I mean, we could really be heading to a situation where the costs to Medicare are really exploding, and you know that that might lead to new you know, a new focus on cost effectiveness, you know, and, and those kind of evaluations in healthcare. So it's an interesting development. And I think we'll, we'll, you know, we'll continue to hear more about this. So just to back up a little bit, the the study itself showed it was a 20% a reduction, I believe I'm remembering that correctly, in yes. cardiovascular events That's with right. people who used Wigovi. 
Yeah. That's right. So and people who that was what. Sorry. So that that was what kind of spurred this idea that, you know, now payers are going to be interested in this. Right. Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, the the subjects in the study were non diabetics, too, which would um, be sort of a, you know, a broader audience than the current, you know, which which focuses mainly on diabetics. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think payers also will be probably waiting for the full results. Those were top line results that were released. I think the full results are going to be released later this year. Um, and they may also want to wait until FDA approves uh, some kind of a cardi cardioprotective um, indication for, for, for Wagobi, assuming that Novo pursues that. It, it does seem like a long road, Kathy, with a, uh, a lot of data still to uh, be revealed and uh, perhaps even gathered if uh, uh, payers are going to be waiting on uh, cost effectiveness uh, data. It's a uh, um, an interesting uh, dilemma for uh, um, you know, there's uh, a drug that's through kind of, uh, as Derek mentioned, uh, you know, uh, they already can't make enough of it, but uh, um, somehow they, uh, um, you know, everyone seems to expect that there's going to be more and more in uh, in demand. So uh, very, very yeah. curious about uh, uh, your analysis on the uh, the Medicare score. I know there's been through kind of uh, um, several rounds of this uh, debate about uh, dynamic scoring and through kind of the, uh, the idea that through kind of uh, drug spending can actually lower overall health costs. I don't know if you see that sort of, uh, flashpoint uh, coming up again in this uh, debate about uh, you know whether we, yeah. we, we would actually sort of kind of uh, you know save money by by this kind of uh, spending i'm sure it would um and it'll you know we'll see what cbo does with that but um you know they have there have been instances where they've looked at at um you know a reduction in in healthcare costs that have been brought about by the use of a drug um it's unclear how you know how far they might take that in this in this case so it could be really interesting to see okay so for the uninformed like me what I, I there was i was i was wondering if we know why medicare like part d can't cover obesity drugs why there why that specifically is the law is it just something that just that was just the way it was written or, you know original statutes were written or is there something that yeah. kind of spurred that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think really when when that restriction went into effect and it uh, uh, Medicare is also restricted from covering, I think it's hair loss and erectile dysfunction drugs. It was obesity drugs at that point, and this was at the beginning of the Part D benefit, um, were considered lifestyle drugs and, you know, basically not worth Medicare covering. Um, of course, they've gotten a lot more effective now, and so the argument is that you know that that restriction really doesn't apply anymore. So that's what this you know legislation is trying to do. I think there's like more appreciation now to, I, I mean, as Kathy mentioned, like some of the previous weight loss drugs we've had were not very good, and they often ended up having very um, dangerous side effects. And now there's more appreciation too, I think, of the connection to, to weight to other health problems. Obviously, that's which is why people, I think, were so excited about this cardiovascular outcomes trial, because it really sort of directly proved the, the drug's impact there. Um, even though there's been this general sense, I think, that's built up over the years about how weight can impact health, making the connection to the drug is really helpful for the drug companies. But it's interesting to me because I still feel like 
I, I thought sort of as a society, we've sort of gotten away from some of that bias or way we've thought about weight, right? Again, as sort of a little bit more of a, um, maybe a cosmetic issue or something like that, or that, you know, um, there are other ways to lose weight and that the medical way is, you know, there's sort of been this, you know, sort of bias of, you know, you should try other things before you try, um, you know, medical um, interventions. And I think there's been more realization over the years that there is a clear need and role for them. And this is not all about willpower, but I feel like some of those biases are starting to creep up and maybe it's just because of that not wanting to pay aspect um, for these interventions. So it's kind of been interesting to see um, just some of those dynamics shake out. Although yeah, I guess if Nova was able to uh, get a claim on the label for, uh, you know, reduction of uh, um, cardiac events, that uh, would render it not a weight loss drug and, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, put it in the cardiovascular uh, uh, category uh, directly. So uh, that, that could be uh, one strategy around the legislative prohibition if they're, uh, um, I'm sure there'll be a, a big fight about that, but that could be uh, could be one route into, uh, into coverage just for not, uh, not calling it a weight loss uh, drug for, uh, you know, Medicare uh, formulary purposes. The other thing that's kind of interesting um, that Kathy wrote about before that I was sort of reminded of again this week is um, semeglitude. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but, um, you know, it's right. So it's been approved for diabetes for a long time. And because it's the same active ingredient um, and, you know, it's it's really just different dosage forms that um, are used for people that don't have diabetes, but just are using it for obesity purposes, um, it's possible it could end up getting subject to the IRA drug price negotiation. So that'll be sort of another factor, I think, to watch um, in terms of how that impacts what Medicare does with it, what price they're able to get, and whether that shifts, um, again, thinking around coverage and access here, if that drug yeah. ends up being subject to the right. IRA. That's that's a good point. And I think, too, um, when the, you know, assuming that drug is negotiated and the price comes down, um, that will probably impact other drugs in that category because they'll be competing with that drug. Um, plans are required to to put negotiated drugs on formulary. So it could have the effect of bringing down prices for competing drugs too. I'm thinking the Lilly drug. So it could be helpful in that sense. This this is also interesting too, because it connects with uh, something else we saw this week, which was a obesity advocates were meeting with the commissioner of the FDA to talk about the differences between obesity treatments and short-term weight loss treatments. And, you know, if if like what you were saying, Sarah, that, you know, that the, this is a, you know, if we're, we're talking about obesity and its connection to other health problems and how, you know, how that, you know, the benefits, you know, of lowering one can be to the other, then, you know, you certainly want to, you may want to make that distinction between what is an obesity drug and necessarily what is something that you may want to use just to shed a few pounds. It's a little that, you know, Kathy, maybe fall into what you were saying before, kind of the lifestyle category, if you want to call it that. I don't I don't know if 
you know, I'm not going to pretend to judge anybody who wants to lose weight because I need to lose some myself. But, you know, you know, I, I it, that discussion might be long and, and, and difficult to kind of draw that line, maybe. Well, I, you know, I thought that was really interesting that that meeting took place. And I was wondering what what are the short term like weight loss treatments that they're thinking of there are the 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 older ones the fentermine ones or do you do you have a sense of you know where um those advocates were trying to draw the line i think between sort of these newer drugs and maybe other ones they didn't get into it with me when they were talking about what they discussed it was just mainly yeah. just getting the label they wanted the labels the, they wanted the label the, the distinction between one versus the other uh-huh. and you know they were trying to talk to fda about how to do that i don't you know yeah whether whether fda can draw that line or not i don't you know i don't know is there like existing i i get yeah i sort of had some i guess follow-up questions it's over from your story as well like whether there's existing sort of guidance or you know practice of fda of right like what earns you what kind of data earns you what labeling claim? Like, is that already yeah, exactly. set? Yeah. It, is that, does already FDA have formal policy or is that what they're trying to get them to think about um, around the labeling here of what words, what is the word, proper word choice? And um, yeah, it just raised a lot of questions in my mind also because again, it's like, um, I think uh, Matt brought up this idea of, is it an obesity drug if it re- right reduces, you know, cardiovascular symptoms or is it a heart drug? And it seems possible with this class of drugs, right? They might be able to get like multiple claims, right? <laughs> I mean, we already know, it, it, you know, it's a di- type two diabetes drug. And then how does that, how does the, the labeling shape out? And certainly, um, you know, it's always been interesting to me that they decided to do go with a different branding of the drug, right? <laughs> when you're just focused on obesity. Um, because we certainly know we have plenty of drugs that have multiple indications where they don't rebrand them in that way, even if, you know, dosing shifts a bit or so forth. So it'll be interesting for me to even see like how they move forward thinking about that, because I imagine that cardiovascular disease is not the only, you know, area where they might try and get, you know, some sort of added kind of claims for these drugs. I mean, it's a yeah. big it's a big question for coverage, right? Because if you, I mean, especially with the whatever the the TikTok thing or the whatever the internet thing was, where all of a sudden people started saying, "Hey, I'm taking, you know, I took whatever this, you know, weight loss drug, this whatever this was, and I knocked off five pounds, and now I feel great." Well, is that the same as being treated for obesity? You know, I'm sure there are people that will argue yes and no, but if if you if most people are using it for this short term weight loss or like small you know shedding a few pounds that's a lot different i think from maybe from maybe from a coverage perspective than for people who are using it because they you know as a treatment for obesity where they're trying to prevent all these other health issues from from occurring or getting out of control so i you know Word choices, you know, words matter, you know, I think in this case a lot. And I think that might be what they were trying to get at, or at least that the ultimate goal at the end of the day is. Yeah, that makes sense. That to make to clarify that obesity is more of a medical condition um, and, you know, differ that differs from, you know, some kind of short term thing. Yeah. 
yeah, this, this is going to be an interesting area to watch. So, um, yeah, thanks, Kathy. That, this is a this is a really interesting um, discussion. Next, we're going to return to one of the more popular topics of 2023, mifepristone. Brenda, it looks like another citizen petition was filed to try and force the FDA to revoke its approval of the medication abortion drug. This time, though, they're arguing that the Clean Water Act was violated. Yes, uh, Students for Life of America uh, is asking FDA to revoke approval, saying that it's not in compliance with the Clean Water Act because uh, the agency didn't uh, uh, do an environmental impact assessment um, and determine whether mifepristone would pollute the waterways. Um, and this... Um, this is the this group's this anti-abortion group's fourth petition to FDA, and they seem to be just throwing wh whatever they can possibly think of to just say that uh, the drug should be revoked. And um, in 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 doing this, uh, FDA has a mandate to do an environmental impact uh, on uh, before a drug approval. And it seems, I mean, they cite some document that in which FDA um, said it was relying on the Population Council's assessment. Um, the Population Council was the one, the group that filed the new drug application and, and got approval. I, it's just um, hard to believe that of all the thousands of drugs the FDA has approved, they suddenly decided, oh, we're not going to do an assessment of this drug. We're going to just ignore our mandate. And they don't give any examples in the petition of any time that the Clean Water Act has been applied to um, a drug approval um, uh, or, or, or FDA. And, and, and one reference that they have in there is they, they liken it to um, giving a cattle grazing permits and, and that could reasonably lead to pollution, but they don't mention any drugs. And um, they did file a similar petition in um, April saying that FDA should revoke Mifepristone because it didn't follow the requirements of the Endangered Species Act. And in that case, they said FDA didn't consult with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service before approval. And thus, they say this could this has led to the harm of many endangered species. Um, another petition was filed uh, last year asking the agency to require that prescribers of mifepristone provide a, a medical kit and um, a catch kit uh, to to and, and medical waste bag to assure that mifepristone is not um, end up in the waterways. Um, and another petition, they asked us to FDA to revise a REMS to the version that was implemented in 2011 which limited um, prescription to seven weeks gestation and restricted administration just by physicians. Um, FDA responded to that petition and denied it and said it's the same as a petition that was filed several years ago that that they denied um, when they changed the REMS. So this just seems like given the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine's um, lawsuit it kind of left an opening to just make any claims against FDA. And this just seems to be, um, you know, a frivolous citizen petition, really. Um, and FDA, you know, they don't, they can't sanction someone for, like courts can for filing a, a frivolous lawsuit. And they just have to, you know, deal with, deal with these petitions. 
So I was going to ask Brenda, I guess, and I know over the years there's been some efforts to try and protect FDA from being bogged down by frivolous citizen petitions. I mean, how how much effort, I guess, like, how does FDA have to respond to these, like, as if they were made in good faith? Like, um, like how does this work for FDA and how much can this disrupt them and just sort of, if if this is really, if these are not good faith kind of efforts, like, how much time and energy does FDA have to put in it and what else, what other work, I guess, do they not, are they not able to do because of it? Or are they able to kind of prove somehow like, right, like, you know, you're just sort of trying to waste our time and, you know, so that they can focus on, you know, they have plenty of more urgent priorities potentially. I think there's a statutory requirement that they have to respond to petitions and, and they have to do so within a certain period, which is why you'll see quite often they'll send a uh, respond uh, an interim letter out, and and they did so with a couple of these um, petitions, and they said, you know, it uh, it's you raise complex issues. We're, we're you know we're considering it, so they respond. But there are times when it's like many many years before they issue a final response, and sometimes it's tied to a specific action, like the one petition that was filed against the REMS changes and they issued a petition several years later when they actually changed the REMS. I, I don't know who like who's like in charge of like dealing with um with all the petitions that come in. I know I know I've seen like Peter Marks has issued extremely lengthy um responses, detailed responses on um what seemed on the face, you know, to be absurd criticisms of approvals like of um you know, COVID vaccines and, and things. And I think it's, I think that my impression is that he's done that to set a record, like this is what the agency has done. And this is the basis of, of the approval. And it just like knocks aside these petitions, but with an incre- incredible amount of information. I know you see a lot of these with, in the generics world too, where, you know, sponsors that, you know, have their, their drugs about to go off patent will file citizen petitions saying, and and some of them might be reaching for straws, you know, uh, with with some of the issues they bring up, you know, to try and get the FDA to say that the, the generic has to do a bunch of extra studies or something like that to get the, you know, to show to be truly considered equivalent and, and so forth. And, you know, like you said, Brenda, FDA sends out the we're looking at this, you know, letter and then at some point down the road, you get a a, le- a really lengthy statement that basically says no. Um, you know, so uh, yeah, it the it I mean, it I I don't know if FDA is at all shocked that they're getting all of these petitions. I don't know what potentially could stop them, even if you know if the the pending suit goes you know in FDA's favor again. I don't know if that necessarily these groups will you know, stop trying to get the, uh, you know, get them to to change the, the Mifepristone um, approval or the REMS or, you know, whatever it is they got going. Yeah, I, I actually wondered too, like what the strategy is from the, you know, point of view of the, um, the group submitting these petitions. Is it sort of like throwing spaghetti against a wall and seeing like what sticks or I, I, Oh, you know, are they looking to elicit something from the agency that might help them in a, you know, in, in like in a court case or I don't know, Brenda, if you have a, a feel for. Well, 
I, I th that's exactly what I thought about throwing spaghetti at the wall. That's yeah. exactly what I think. I don't, I don't think yeah. there's a, I, I don't think there's a basis for it. And you know, they, they didn't file a lawsuit. They filed a citizen petition, and you know, I mean, it's certainly possible that it could uh, uh, be the uh, the prelude to a uh, a lawsuit. I, you know, I think we've all seen uh, um, uh, suits for sort of kind of the. Uh, uh, the parties have to show that they sort of tried other uh, means aside from the uh, uh, going into court uh, um, to uh, to get FDA to sort of do what it uh, do what it wants them to do first. So that there could uh, it could be the uh, be the prelude to a, a suit, but obviously the other petitions haven't sort of kind of worked out that way for them. So uh, it uh, could just sort of kind of be uh, be a nuisance activity on the uh, on the same on the same rounds. Yeah, Matt, since you brought up uh, the court case, Brenda, where are we at on the, is it the appeals court that's still still pending? Is that what we're waiting for? Yeah, the Fifth Circuit heard uh, oral argument in in uh, FDA's appeal of uh, the Texas District Court decision um, staying uh, FDA approval. They heard oral argument in May, and so it's, you know, been waiting to see what their, their decision is. Um, and after the decision comes up, um, the parties could seek full and bunk review by the Fifth Circuit. Um, there's some think that uh, it'll head directly to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court's, um, you know, not in session again until October, and um, they, they, they'll just wait until they resume. I mean, there's a stay. In, they issued the Supreme Court issued a stay on. Uh, on the entire uh, outcome of of the approval and the REMS changes um until the final judgment which would be you know clearly the, the final judgment would be the supreme court judgment on the appeal so the status of the drug remains the same um the rems remain the same um until until the supreme court would issue a ruling great thanks brenda it's a you know not the you know maybe kind of the eye roll type of case, but uh, still kind of a water cooler issue, I think, for for a lot of people. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> another, way, another way to go after FDA. <laughs> Finally, we're going to look at an issue that remains popular at the FDA as well as the rest of the world, returning to work in the office. White House Chief of Staff Jeff Science recently told cabinet members that he wants them to push federal employees to work in the office more beginning in September and October. Zeintz said in the memo that more in-person work will increase morale, teamwork, and productivity. But for the FDA, this move could threaten its own new hybrid work policy, which allows staff to work from home or in the office, depending on their duties. The flexibility has helped the FDA to recruit needed expertise, including, ex including employees that are fully remote, as well as retain employees who move away from the Washington, D.C. area. The move comes amid long-running complaints from Republicans about the need to end or curtail work-from-home policies now that the COVID-19 emergency is over. Local politicians also are complaining that the lack of federal workers in downtown areas is killing restaurants and coffee shops and other businesses and creating problems for public transportation budgets. So I'm curious what you all think of this. Are Peter Marx's fears that someone could take away the FDA hybrid work policy actually you know, potentially coming to pass here? I think like some of the headlines from the, what um, the White House has asked for and then like the more detailed ask have gotten, um, the headlines have not quite aligned with what the more detailed ask is and the more detailed ask seems like they're okay with, might 
be okay with hybrid, you know, hybrid going forward, but not um, a lot of people fully working remotely. So I think it's going to be like in that interpretation and implementation um, because um, I think it's a lot different to tell people that would like to work remote either some or all the time that they have to come, you know, you can't do that anymore. Um, so I think we'll see, but I, I, I do think there are lots of, you know, businesses and industries for which um, people have found they can work from home quite fine. They're just as productive, some maybe even more productive, you know, being from home. And there's lots of other sort of like lifestyle benefits, whether it's, you know, not spending time in traffic commuting or, you know, having easier childcare pickups or, you know, being able to, you know, make healthier dinners rather than, you know, having to, you know, pick up takeout. So I, I do think like, you know, particularly in the types of people FDA needs and wants to recruit where they have lots of choices. And, you know, that could make a difference if, you know, they were really forced to bring people back into the office who felt like that didn't, wasn't necessary for their, to actually make a difference in their work quality. Yeah, that's the Peter Marx's example of the 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 benefits of the of the hybrid policy was that they hired an expert in Hawaii who is still in Hawaii, didn't didn't move to Washington, doesn't have to, said he's they said the person is super productive and you know, is one of only a handful of people in the world that they could find that knew that had the expertise that they were looking for for the job. So, he is perfectly content with probably never meeting that person in person. So yeah, it, it, I, I wonder if, I wonder if recruitment and retention, you know, folks at FDA are, are concerned about this because if, you know, if they start having to say, well, we want people in the office and, you know, that, that, that that's good for morale and teamwork and so forth that I wonder if that turns some people off. That struck me as a pretty good argument, you know, against um, the return to work policy, you know, the recruitment piece, because, you know, that's an issue at FDA and you wouldn't want to jeopardize that. Now, I guess you pointed out, Derek, that um, even prior to COVID, you know, FDA has been running out of space at White Oak or has run out of space to some degree and already was sort of you know, doing hoteling or force to sort of whether you wanted to or not, I guess, you know, stagger when people were coming into the office. So perhaps just the logistics of that maybe um, helps make it easier for them to keep some people more remote or fully remote. Well, yeah, I mean, that the the reason that they sponsored they this big, big, uh, you know, drawing and research of a expansion that create would have added that would add two huge office towers to white oak was because they didn't have enough space for all the people that they had and that they were like you said sarah hoteling desks and you know and and you know rotating people in and out you know from telework because they just there was no there wasn't enough places there aren't enough parking spaces there's no there's no public transportation i mean there is some public transportation but it's not it's not easy to get there from like the met from the train or anything like that and yeah, it's a uh, unless they wanted to turn around and and greenlight that project, which is you know multi millions of dollars and would take you know I'm guessing years to complete. Um, I I don't know if they physically could do it if they said everybody's got to be in on Tuesday and Wednesday now or something like you know 
or however they want to draw it up. It, it would be, you know, it, it would be incredibly difficult. And to top it all off, they've, you know, during the pandemic, they cut back on a lot of things that were in the office, like the cafeteria service and things like that. So you would have to change all those contracts, however you had that worked out, and get that back up to be able to handle the entire a full office again. And, you know, could you do that in a few weeks? I, you know, I, I have no idea, but it doesn't sound like it would be very easy. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there'd be... <laughs> I, I think there would be there would be a lot of hurdles that would have to be overcome potentially to um, you know to put this back to get you know to to go back to January of 2019 before they they sent everybody home. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Brenda Sandberg, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 